Never in the history of the world have the merchants of obscenity had available to them the modern facilities for disseminating this filth. Disseminating this filth. The onslaught of the communist masters of deceit. Bingo. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Oh, yeah. What's up? Hello. Hello. Steve's here, too. I was just saying that I was, unfortunately, taking the last bites of my dessert. It was a fancy crepe, one that had a pistachio cake inside, and then it also had strawberries and um, walnuts. There's a lot. Yeah. The pistachio was an especially inspired choice. Where'd you get it from? You want to get a sponsor out of this? Yeah. Yeah. The crepe guru, Jersey City. (laughs) Oh, that's right next to your place, right? Pretty much. So, how's everyone doing? You know, we're in the Uh, lull between the coups. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. Well, by the time this comes out, the second coup will have happened. Will have commenced. The storm will have come. I do want to talk a little bit about QAnon being fun again. Mm-hmm. I'm sure both of you have come across face-off conspiracy. Oh, yeah. And what's great about anything Q-related is that it could have been a complete shitpost joke, but some people are going to be like, this is one of the clues. All right, you have to explain it. So the newest kid on the block in the Q conspiracy is that, in fact, there has been a face-off situation that's occurred. Face-offs. Yes, I'm referring to the film, the cinematic classic starring John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. Two Mm. men with very different jawlines who somehow... Through the magic of medical science, their faces are switched. And then I don't know what else happens. Uh, I just know the premise of the movie. (laughs) So essentially, they're saying that uh, because a big part of the QAnon conspiracy is that, oh, these big, typically liberal figures are going to be arrested and put to death in this like kind of grandiose, like Spanish Inquisition, but for like uh, magic pedophiles. So because everything is like fucking not going their way now a new theory has come forth which is that when trump gets arrested it's actually biden in a face-off situation and that our new president biden is actually donald j trump i love it i have a lot of confidence trump is gonna get arrested i know they're just i mean that's really cute i think he already has we haven't seen him for like well that's the best part of QAnon is that they'll just be like tom hanks already arrested (laughs) they'll say like julia louis dreyfus already put to death like they'll just make these wild claims and they hope so bad that they'll accidentally get correct they'll accidentally uh say that someone's been put to death who ends up dead. It's lovely. I mean, that's a time-honored 
trope of conspiracy theories is just mm-hmm. throwing shit at the wall, seeing what sticks, and maybe, just maybe, something out there will be correct. Yeah. We've got the classics out there still, too. I don't want to downplay it. We've got your false flag operations. You've got your, uh, of course, obviously, Antifa in disguise. You know, those are all still out there. But I'm a fan of the face-off. What else happened this week? <laughs> uh, Ariel Pink happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have no idea who the hell that is. Uh, I yeah. listened to one song of that person, and... Decided it was all the worst parts of MGMT just rolled into a song. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Marla, what you will get from this, which will transition into the next part of what happened this week. He's the guy in the hauntology video for Cuck Philosophy where he's got the cowboy hat and he's considered hypnagogic pop. Hypnagogic pop, sometimes used interchangeably with chill wave or glow fee. Okay. And it's all very retro 80s. Like a combination of really deep synth music with like lo-fi emulation. Yeah. The, the, the kids love lo-fi. No, I, I mean, I, I saw Ariel Pink and I was like, uh, it looks like some Elephant Six stuff. And uh, so I stayed away from it. Well, I think Mark Fisher was a real big fan. Yeah, could be true. What a betrayal. <laughs> yeah. Now yeah. Mark Fisher canceled. Canceled. Oh, Mark yeah. Fisher's ghost, depressed. God, he couldn't even. <laughs> oh man, this is a real bummer. Um, oh man, existence is not going great for old Mark Fisher. <laughs> yeah, not existence either. His look like some airplanes over the sea, and I was just like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well. His music choices, as is, were just very spotty. Yeah, no, his music choices, as is, was just... I went to uh, a somewhat lesser-known college in England in 1994 and did a bunch of ecstasy. Yeah, and, and tried to stay relevant with the kids. But the other thing that happened this week, at least to my knowledge, was the Zero Books Cuck Philosophy. Oh, God. Yeah, um, I still have not listened to that, and there's no fucking way I'm <laughs> going to listen to that shit. <laughs> like, I could honestly, I could barely stand anyone the fuck involved. So, Doug Lane from Zero Books, who put out Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. Hello, Zero Books readers. Hello, Zero Books readers. What does it mean to be gay with your dad? Uh, <laughs> how does this relate to political correctness? What was what was the joke they made about him? That he they asked him if he was related to Nathan Lane and uh, also Zero Inches books. Yeah, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> but uh, he went on Come Town and uh, shit talk our boy cuck philosophy for being more popular than him who's like you know i would personally honor by remembering what the fuck he calls himself now um but preferred moniker yeah anyway the artist formerly known as cuck philosophy (laughs) who's great and smart and one of the best fucking channels on youtube that's true unlike zero books which uh sucks ass as both a youtube channel and in the critical theory publishing house yeah and doug lane i don't think any of us like he 
is the epitome of... The videos are fucking boring and uninformative. He's the epitome <laughs> of Gen X, uh, like... Yeah, which is boo, Yeah, gross. boo, fuck. What am I? What am I? Ten years old? Uh, which yeah, is when I would be consuming Gen X media. Is how I feel. Gen X is a state of mind. No, for sure. To me, it's very like crystallized in this sort of pop culture memory for me of being around ten-ish years old and it being like reality bites mm-hmm. and you know the kind of orbiting stories. At yeah, Empire Records. Yeah. There's there's a bunch of things in the 90s. What was that TV show with the red High Fidelity. High Fidelity, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Ten times I've been gay with my dad. It's basically search for authenticity is the general motif that's into the ground. Which is also present in the younger generation as a fixation. It Um, is, but it's with less irony. In Gen X, which, oh, is, yeah. which is the yeah. which is the thing that gets lost in translation between the generations. Doug Lane just doesn't do irony, like the Pearl Jams and the Nirvanas and all these Gen X titans. They took themselves so goddamn seriously. That's yeah. right. They're gonna put on their fucking ad busters shoes, and they're gonna <laughs> save the world. Or yeah, just realize you can't and kill yourself. Actually, what they're gonna do is wear concert t-shirts well into them being dads and stuff. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what you do. I, uh, just putting it out there, I'm uh, fundamentally against any restrictions of any kind uh, in terms of, like, what one should wear, etc. But I do think it's funny. Like, there was a comedy special Bill Maher put out, and it was like somebody had styled him like he was like, yeah, this is like, very cool. And it just looked like an old man in an Ed Hardy t-shirt. Mm, you know? Just, you know? So Doug Lane, At least- Doug Lane sucks and has no comedic value and has no sense of like irony or general like he just takes himself too seriously and he goes on the most ironic podcast at least that i know of come town and complains about cuck philosophy because he doesn't get as many likes or shares and it came off as really petty and really jealous and why would you why would you put that out there (laughs) i just don't Anyways, uh, that's what's been going on in my world. I don't know what else is going on in your world. Rewatching Hey Arnold. <laughs> okay, nice. I, I'll go on the couch is one of the best examples of therapy positive media that I can think of in and probably one of the earliest examples of therapy positive media. This is a really great show. Uh, would you say she was the protagonist of the show? Well, that's the thing. Hey Arnold, much unlike most kids' shows of its type, a lot of shows of that type have one-off episodes uh, about the bully character where it's like, oh, you find out that they're poor or some shit. But with Hey Arnold, both Harold and Helga are regular main characters on the show that regularly have episodes about them. And they are the bully characters, but they're also like in the friend group in a very realistic way of like, yeah, these people are kind of assholes sometimes, but like, they still hang out with us. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because that's how you are when you're yeah. uh, well, yeah. Someone's just like, Ugh. Well, bullies 
act as bullies act as these internal terrorist forces, but they're also pretty good when you have external terrorizing forces coming at you. Yeah, they're they're muscle. Yeah, and I mean, usually in shows like that, I mean, like, you got Roger Klotz, who's just, like, a dick, and, like, you might have one episode where it's like, oh, actually, Roger Klotz's parents are divorced, or some, like, bullshit like that. But, yeah, only with Helga and Harold do you, like, have, like, an entire fucking episode about Harold uh, getting his bar mitzvah. Or, like, you know, you have multiple things where it's like, oh, Helga needs to do a thing with Phoebe and they're just friends and they have a weird dynamic, but yeah, it's pretty great. And Helga on the Couch is a really great episode. And like also just like the fact that when I was a little kid watching the show, it didn't register with me that Helga's mom is an alcoholic. And if you're an adult watching the show now, it's incredibly like not even ambiguous that Helga has an alcoholic mom. I thought, and like the I way they were able to pull that. that off. I thought she was on pills. Yeah, I mean, like they'll switch it around, but it's she's clearly an addict of some kind, probably alcoholic, most of all. Yeah, you know, like when you're a little kid watching it, it's like, oh, she's goofy and kind of unreliable, and it'd be nice if Helga had a more like normal mom. But like when you're an adult watching it, it's like, oh, she's an addict. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I did see some Hey Arnold in my older years and that did also stand out to me. There's a lot in that show that seems pretty unambiguous uh, looking at it as an adult. And yeah, a more realistic way of Charlie Browning the parents out of things where it's just like, oh yeah, they can just ride public transportation to different places. (laughs) That's always what I'm jealous of kids who grow up in New York, both when I was a kid and now. It's basically that Um, movie Kids without all the fucking and AIDS. That's not where I would go. There's like a million different things. I don't know if you guys ever came across Ghost Rider on PBS. Um, I was, I didn't have cable till I was like a full teenager. Do we know the origin of Ghost Rider that was intended by the writers that that was implied, but there was a written but never aired episode where they were explicit about it. Do we know the origins of it, though? Go, go for uh, it. He was, Ghost Rider, in his normal life, was a slave boy that surreptitiously learned to read and then escaped and was hunted down and murdered. Oh. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> like literally 100%. If you look into it, there was an episode where they were going to get explicit about that and then they decided not to because that was depressing but yeah there was something in ghost rider where it was like mentioned that he was killed by dogs yeah yeah i remember it's like yeah there is some implication that he's killed in a really violent way yeah like it's anyway you you say that yeah you say this and i'm like yeah i feel like this was implied in some way yeah but yeah, I was super into Ghost Rider and I loved the idea that I could be like in middle school and yeah, it was murder for reading solving, reasons. <laughs> solving mysteries with a ghost. So yeah. Also, you know, uh, very diverse cast. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, hey Arnold, definitely. Uh... That's a segue. The Latino characters the family did own a oh, bodega. Yeah. And speaking of bodegas, <laughs> Andrew Yang. It Andrew was kind Yang. of a bodega. Future it, mayor. I believe Andrew the Yang. owner came out and said it was a bodega. It's arguably a bodega. It's just yeah. not. It's not an uptown. Like it's not around. Yeah, it's bodega. not a it's super like, shitty bodega. All right, we need it's to context. We need to bring context. Andrew, Andrew Yang running for announced he's running for mayor. Yes, and so he released a video where he's like, "Hey, New Yorkers, I love bodegas," and like it was basically There's this many. Of yeah, them. it was basically like Donald Trump Cinco de Mayo talking about taco bowls or some shit, except it was bodegas. Well, before this, he also said he left the city during the pandemic because could you imagine? Raising yeah, two yeah. kids in a two-bedroom apartment. Who, who are doing remote learning, but you live in a two-bedroom. But yeah, super which out I, of touch. Which I thought was, shitty. which is definitely out of touch because uh, it's you know not relatable to a lot of people. But the funny thing is, is that there's a lot of pretty well-off people who, for the first time in their lives, are facing that kind of real kind of adversity. And, like, and well, for him to be like, like really wealthy people in New York right? live in two bedrooms. <laughs> like that's the other yeah. thing where. It's like, it's not just like, oh, you can't be relatable to poor people. It's like, yeah, a lot of really well-off New York people are doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. They can get well, away with it. They're also doing the fleeing themselves. thing. They're also Say doing the fleeing. Yeah, no, a lot of them are Well, yeah, but I'm saying but... there are ones that could not flee that are actually living out what Andrew Yang is so flippantly saying, who could do this? There are a subset of, in the grand scheme of things, well-off New Yorkers who are dealing with or that or kind of... Or just, it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't want to move. It's not like everyone who can did move out of the city. Well, and I mean, some people, maybe they left they went somewhere for a while, but it wasn't necessarily a permanent right. place. You know, all these people are relatively fine, but there are echelons within them. I did think it was funny that he it wouldn't even occur to him to, like, speak measuredly about this. He just kind of was like, yeah, who would do such a thing? And also, a lot of his propositions just, I don't know if you guys looked into it, it seems like he doesn't like New York. <laughs> it's like he thinks the wrong things about New York are bad and need to be improved upon. Uh, one of his proposals is to do something to attract TikTok creator hype house <laughs> type things. Mm. And like, why? Um, also, that kind of bullshit already exists. Uh, there are places like the fucking Soho house or whatever. Like, I still keep thinking about the hype house thing. Like, I don't know what he thinks that would like bring to New York City. Um. The biggest city in the country. More stocks <laughs> for the Chinese government. I don't. I don't know. I wish yeah, he was. I know. China. We all wish he was the deep <laughs> plant. I don't know. I'm torn because on one hand, like I hate Andrew Yang with all of my being. He is everything about politics, specifically people who are deluded into thinking it's left politics, is wrong. Yeah. And on the other hand, I also feel like New Yorkers 
knee-jerkingly skewer whoever is in the spotlight. And I'm not so sure how long that skewering works. Oh, I 100% think he's going to win. <laughs> like, he's got this dummy fandom that they're just like kind of dopey, uh, but they're not super loud. I, <laughs> I think they're around. loud. I think uh, they're also, I think it really hinges on if Bloomberg goes all in for him. I mean, definitely, I think that would make a huge difference. Uh, I also think his stupid little narrative of being like this sort of in-between person, all these dum-dums out here, they just love this shit. They, you know. This candidate lost the last time. I'm talking about, like, if Andrew Yang can solidify the funds for marketing... Through yeah. Bloomberg's machine. I'm not talking about, like, his endorsement or whatever. I don't think that matters so much. Ooh, I bet Andrew Yang does something with uh, the Sex and the City reboot. Oh, my God. Uh, Cynth- just, you think Cynthia's going to run uh, again? Uh, I was only kind of perturbed at the Sex and the City reboot sort of news because it did not bode well for my hopes for Cynthia's political aspiration. I do enjoy her as an actress um, in other projects. I I don't like it because that show is stupid for the sole reason that it appeals to a female audience. (laughs) And they should just (laughs) instead... And they should watch the show. Yeah, no, they should instead just, and I know that The Many Saints of Newark is coming out, but they should also just launch a new Sopranos show and everything should be Sopranos because that's a movie Mm -hmm. about guys being guys. Well, yeah, there should just be like a bunch of Sopranos. It'll be like Sopranos of all ethnicities. (laughs) No, like that Turkish (laughs) Sopranos show. It'll be like... What Sopranos about? babies where they're in a preschool. Oh, that would be awesome. Um, oh my god. And little Polly <laughs> still has like the fucking white in his hair. Oh, that's great. Yes. Oh, oh that that's so Absolutely. that's such a great idea. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh it should just be sex and the Sopranos. Yeah. I a bunch of women talking about how James Gandolfini is an objectively attractive man. Yeah. That's good no, TV. It's good because it doesn't involve women. It's not TV. It's HBO. <laughs> I have randomly been watching the mid 2000s show. Oh, no. oh, I remember that. What's funny is that I'm like, why? <laughs> There's a lot of jokes and storylines where I'm like, why? <laughs> I like to mix it up and watch a very low stakes, dumb show. Out of Steel Chess is starting. Chess. It's the first uh, Super GM over the board tournament in a very long time, given the COVID era. Beautiful. Corona had a really <laughs> great uh, opposite side castling victory as Black today. Uh, so, yeah, that's happening. That's right. That's mm-hmm. Chess Chat, Chat with mm-hmm. Marlo. <laughs> Yeah, but we can we can move on to Rosa. But it is because I'm watching Cougar Town that I am drinking mm, red yeah. wine right now. Speaking I'm very, uh, of cougars, uh, Rosa fucked her friend's son. <laughs> <laughs> she fucked so many people. Yeah, well, she she's, was, one of those people was Clara Zetkin's kid. 
Well, okay, tell the people who we're talking about. She's Rosa your boo, Marlo. Rosa Luxemburg. Oh, no. Uh, German socialist from the 19-teens was murdered by proto-fascists in 1919, anniversary which just passed. R.I.P. to a real one. She's really great. She started the German Communist Party. Well, well she was a co-founder. I, I thought that was... Yeah, okay, okay, sure. She was very into universal suffrage, which I'm sure we can get into. Uh, that's like a thing about her feminist lens. I watched a thing about feminism in Rosa Luxemburg, and they made a point to uh -huh. point out that she didn't just want women's suffrage. She was one of the early proponents of universal suffrage. She was extremely uh -huh. anti-war, also didn't agree with Lenin on things, but wanted a communist future for Germany. She was Polish and then moved to Yeah, she was Germany. Polish. Right, yeah. And was Jewish. Yeah, she was like a precocious young person and was frequently told like, oh, it's, it's such a shame, all this smarts. That you're a girl. And now she also had a um, limp. Yes, she was mm -hmm. crippled because she had to wear a cast genetically. So she was like in a crazy cast for a very long time. Yeah, but she, yes, she was disabled and had a limp for life. My favorite source material uh, for everyone listening about Rosa Luxemburg is uh, Marlo actually introduces to me. Um, there's a graphic biography of Rosa Luxemburg that I really love that I saw at Marlo's and then I ordered it uh, myself. Uh, it's by Kate Evans. But yes, it's a really good biography of Rosa and it's illustrated. Red Rosa, um, <laughs> right? Red Rosa by Kate Evans. She's the OG pinko commie slut. Yes, <laughs> for sure. And yes, she did. She lived a pretty free life in terms of social mm -hmm. norms. She, she, she did got what she what wanted. She, she got what she wanted. It's a good story. Good life. She had a life for, uh, <laughs> for a while. But Marlo, you're the supreme fanboy. Why don't, he calls why, himself why? a Luxembourgist. I call myself yeah, an Orthodox Marxist, by which I mean a Luxembourgist who understands Luxembourgism isn't really a thing. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> explain. Uh, I mean, I she uh, would generally be placed within the revolutionary faction of the Second International, along with Lenin, which often, in hindsight, a lot's made up to her specific disagreements she had with Lenin, which were actually fairly limited. And by and large, she would be in the anti reformist revolutionary faction, along with him at the time. I feel like they had a respectful relationship. Yeah, they, for the most part, did. There's a famous tr piece by Trotsky defending her, which is why you have... I mean, I always say the biggest uh, issue with Rosa Luxemburg is all her English translators are Trotskyists. <laughs> we don't like them. Yeah, I mean, like, whatever. They're just the only ones doing it, and they tend to be opinionated. I mean, they mostly disagreed on the national questions specifically and like a few organizational differences that might broach accusations of slight authoritarianism on Lenin's part but uh yeah what do you mean by orthodox marxist 
I uh, generally disagree with certain ideas uh, that came with uh, post-Lenin Marxism, specifically to do with national liberation and nationalism. Also uh, tend to have a idea of socialism that centers around uh, there being an implicated withering away of capitalism more so than the way socialism tends to get defined in Leninist circles. But yeah, I mean, that just tends to be where I land. And uh, I tend to really like Rosa Luxemburg, and I read her a lot. I don't know that there's a coherent idea of Luxemburgism. Right. I said that flippantly, only because she seems to be your favorite. But this week, we're going to be looking at reform or revolution. Or is it social reform or revolution? I don't know. Either way, it's a big, long shit post. So for all you shit posters mm-hmm. out there... It's a really good shit post. It's a long shit post. Imagine this on Facebook. Just like paragraphs <laughs> of this guy mm-hmm. sucks, which it really is. Um, it attacks the ideas of Edward Bernstein's revisionism and calling on Marlo. Do you, can you define revisionist? Uh, yeah, revisionism? so uh, Edward Bernstein was a part of a growing school within socialist circles at the time uh, that basically argued that despite Marx's predictions, capitalism did not really contain within itself seeds of its own collapse and that the socialists should work more and more on winning quality of life reforms for the working class and not really worry about overthrowing capitalism, which would possibly just come about from continual reforms one legislatively by socialists. Was there a reason he would think that capitalism wouldn't collapse? He wanted... (laughs) I mean, a continued expansion and seeming stability of capitalism. Right, and that was sort of the answer, was that the original... Bunny's correct, but also the original thesis was that capitalism goes through a crisis or a collapse every five Mm -hmm. to ten years. And I think when he wrote it in 1898, uh, what she's responding to, there hadn't been a major crisis since like 1870, 1876, I think, or 1877. And so there had been 20, 30 years of expansion. Those were good good times for growth under capitalism, and there didn't seem to be a real depression. So yeah, there was something like 15, 20 25 years of nothing you could really point to saying, oh, this is a crisis. Therefore, there was a conclusion that, oh, Marx must be wrong because he said in his scientific socialism that capitalism would collapse periodically. And I think that probably led to why he thought what he thought. Yeah, it was also a time where you had large expansions of particularly the German Socialist Party and you had essentially people who were making career politicians within the Socialist Party. Yeah. And us uh, could see, well, maybe this is the happy medium we want. Well, yeah, incrementalism's always got its appeal, especially if anything happens, right? 
any change happens, it makes it seem more realistic that an incrementalist or a within approach is possible. For a lot of people in the States, just the election of Barack Obama signaled to them that, oh, mm-hmm. all this change is possible, you know, and then... Well, also, the irony of that is that capitalism had gone through a crisis right then. That's our last mm-hmm. crisis of capitalism was the 2007-2008 crash people are saying that you know mm-hmm. well, coronavirus is the yeah, next i mean this is a pretty strong crisis right now right but it you know people aren't throwing themselves out of windows yet although they're just dying in mass but like <laughs> the financial sector is stable or going up so by that measure the crisis is almost incubated people are still saying it's gonna collapse everyone every day of my life is saying when is it gonna crash when is it gonna crash this is a bubble this is a coronavirus bubble we need to prepare for the crash but the crash hasn't come yet people were saying (laughs) (laughs) many many people um, were saying was in rosa's words being an opportunist and i think that's when we can probably go into the text itself yeah I had one question, um, which I think should be a running thing, but who is Bernstein? Not like back then. We kind of went over who he was then, but who is our Bernstein? Which I think will help us discuss Rosa's response to him. And I think if we look at what Rosa critiques about Bernstein, we could probably see some analogs or similarities between people who we discuss yeah you don't want to put too much stock in uh (laughs) over metaphorizing history no this is a teaching technique this is a way for people to relate to this oh oh this you know i mean arguably in theory he's pretty much the entirety of what would be considered mainstream socialism in the u.s right now Right. That's what I want to get to is he is today's far left progressivism or justice Democrat or their, their theory of why go with us and not destroy things in the street. You know, vote for us. We'll bring about the changes you want. Which it should be noted also that Rosa Luxemburg was also, quote unquote, electoralist. She was helping run the largest political party in Germany at the time. You know, we we have these arguments today that are not really similar because you have this like, oh, do you vote or do you not vote? And it's like, oh, everyone voted. At the time. Well, no, I brought up she's a universal suffrage. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. She saw that as a revolutionary thing. Right. But what she didn't see Uh as revolutionary is what she attacks Bernstein for. She's like, lists off these things throughout this paper, which are eloquent sick Bernsteins. Well, she calls him... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've written them down here. She calls him an opportunist, um, an idealist, Mm -hmm. a revisionist, and a utopian. And according to Rosa, this is my note, so um, this revisionism doesn't take into account the anarchy of capitalism, which she says multiple times throughout this text that there's this anarchy of capitalism, which I think gets into what we described before, which was the collapse 
like capitalism is anarchistic and it is predetermined to collapse eventually. Yeah, because it's inherently mm-hmm. unstable. She attacks him for rejecting the collapse theory, rejecting scientific socialism, materialism, and rejects the inner contradictions within capitalism. That sounds so familiar. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, I think this really drives the point. Um, uh, legislative reform and revolution are not different member- methods of history. What's the page? What's the page? Uh, well, it would be uh, part two, section conquest of political power. Which she also includes a fun little slam of it has been known for a long time that the petty bourgeois reformer sees good and bad sides and everything. Yeah, where she says uh, legislative reform and revolution are not different methods of historic development that can be picked out at pleasure from the counter of history just as one chooses hot or cold sausages. Legislative reform and revolution are different factors in the development of class society. They condition and complement each other and are at the same time reciprocally exclusive like North and South Poles of bourgeois and proletariat. So you don't want to be too reductive in the idea that, you know, she only saw street action as valid or things like of that nature. I'm not saying that. No, no, I'm not saying you are. I just I think it's worth uh, emphasizing. Well, yeah, that's definitely like uh, where people would put the dynamics thinking from today's point of view. So it's often how people want to present a binary about today's world. But again, not the same world. She hadn't gotten to see how fucking bullshit all the elections were. Yeah, that's the problem. (laughs) She didn't see how terrible the elections. She thought that, you know, universal suffrage, like bing, bang, boom. There you go. Many people, uh, I don't think, realize the lengths and cleverness involved in what would become regular electoral practice, wherever it may be. So she talks a lot about the adaptations Um, that Bernstein makes. That reform is an attempt to adapt capitalism until it's socialism. Mm -hmm. And I find this also very prescient, but I also recognize that there is a gulf of time where these adaptations were kind of new. The adaptations that she lists are credit and employers organization, which is uh, cartels. So like extra judicial rogue companies not attached to any Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the argument with cartels was it was an organization of distribution that was moving away from a pure free market system that was developing within capitalism itself. So the argument Bernstein was making was the market would eventually disappear under capitalism, so you don't need necessarily a revolutionary socialist to centralize production and distribution. Well, and did he just think it was an inevitability, like nothing would be in place to maintain it? It would just... I'm always fascinated by by this idea that it would like naturally fall away. Was it still unclear that there would be some people who would see to it? This is like the weed dealer argument that if 
only all capitalism were like weed dealers. No, that's probably not true. <laughs> it, if only thing if only, worked, only it worked on a black like weed market dealers. outside of centralized capitalism or, well, or mean, Bitcoin. Bitcoin. So, okay, so to kind of put some things in context, her use of anarchic can be very much associated where she's actually directly just talking about a free market system, that there's no guiding mm -hmm. centralized distribution and she names that as a problem with capitalism and she refers to that as anarchic which is common of socialists at that time yeah because anarchy suck uh, yeah it wasn't necessarily a it was, it was totally saying anarchist you suck. yeah it was nothing to do with anarchism it, like political ideology it was a yeah. stop gluing stuff. Yeah, up, good, know, Charlotte. Little Charlotte. Good Charlotte. <laughs> good Charlotte. Good uh, Charlotte. Yeah, she'll make it clear she's actually insulting anarchism, which she does occasionally. But yeah, in this case, it was more just uh, literally talking about the free market. Yeah, I, and, and that's what I said before mm -hmm. that according to Rosa, this revisionism doesn't take into account the anarchy of capitalism, which so, is. is the free market of capitalism being yeah. in a collapse and rebuilding. And Bernstein's uh, argument is essentially that self-regulation of the market to the point of the eventual disappearance of the market will come about by economic necessity as capitalists will be increasingly tired of, you know, collapses and stuff occurring from the free market. So they'll themselves organized distribution outside of a free market was what she's so a cartel would be an association of distributors that organize across the sector to set prices and supply points so that was what bernstein's argument was there i read it as that bernstein wanted to suppress credit and suppress cartels no he was definitely saying that credit and cartels was a thing that will essentially make capitalism not go away but at the same time be a standard by which eventually socialism will develop out of capital. Okay, so it's the standard, not a point of suppression. Yeah, um, I mean... And the way it seemed that he wanted to organize socialism, and she kind of lists it here, there's four things that I listed. Labor unions, parliamentary practice, co-ops, and democracy? Question mark? I mean, it seems like that's linked with parliamentary practice, but one might be mm -hmm. party organizing and democracy writ large, which it seems like Rosa argues against. She definitely argues against labor unions. Yeah, um, and I mean, again, she views all these things as essential to establishing socialism. She just doesn't believe that they will themselves outside of revolutionary activity simply morph into a socialist society. Okay. And I mean, she mentions it in the introduction where she talks about, you know, of course, mm -hmm. socialists are for reforms. I mean, she was organizing labor unions at the time she was writing this. She was organizing the SPD political party and running campaigns as she was writing this. 
she would have freaking ran if women were allowed to do so at the time. Yeah, she was kind of like anything and everything. She was doing it. But she had some more specific criticisms of assuming that things would naturally foment. So, I mean, the idea, again, that, for Um, example, that Bernstein was pushing is that uh, labor unions, you know, they, through their struggle, take decisions out of capitalist hands. They say, oh, you can't lower our pay or we'll go on strike. So the capitalist no longer has the opportunity to lower pay. And eventually... They'll build on that power more and more until the capitalist becomes superfluous, is what Bernstein was arguing, which she uh, specifically said would not happen. I mean, specifically with labor unions, she mentioned that they were at best defensive and served a pedagogic function for showing workers how to organize for material interests and showing them that they have material interests, but that a labor union struggle is not in itself a revolutionary struggle to seize power for the proletariat. It seems like she takes issue with him using it as an education tool. She says Bernstein here, at present, the trade union struggle and parliamentary practice are considered to be the means of guiding and educating the proletariat in preparation for the task of taking over power. From the revisionist standpoint, this conquest of power is at the very same time impossible or useless. And therefore, trade union and parliamentary activity are to be carried out on by the party only for their immediate results, that is, for the purpose of bettering the present situation of the workers for the gradual reduction of capitalist exploitation for the extension of social control. So first of all, keep in mind, when she calls them revisionists, the implication is when she says at present, that means unrevised as we, you know, my side is the correct side that we've always gone with. So at present, my side is is that the union exists primarily as an educational tool for teaching the proletariat how to exercise and seize power. The revisionists view... Right. The revisionists view the seizure of power by the proletariat to be useless because they view revolutionary struggle as useless. And therefore, they view the point of the union as only what the union is in itself doing, i.e., you know, protecting wages, uh, threatening strikes over conditions, etc. So in Luxembourg's view, when a union goes on strike to protect, you know, to protest factory conditions, the point isn't so much, and this is what um, Zizek gets into a little bit with her, it isn't so much to protest those factory conditions or to have those conditions improved. It's to teach the proletariat that they can act unified and they could also do this to seize power at some point. Yeah, I believe she argues that she doesn't negate the merits of voting and organizing, but uh, I believe at some point she compares mm-hmm. them to mm-hmm. a Sisyphean task. It's our old buddy Sisyphus. He's just pushing a boulder mm-hmm. up a hill. It comes back down. You got to do it again. Hilarious. So she's 
sort of appreciating that it's a sort of struggle on accomplishing the goals there, but the value it has Values to organize and educate show people about through by way of what it is. Hey, you notice how the boulder keeps rolling down the hill when you do this? You should do something else. Like that's honestly and they can't learn mm-hmm. that they should do something else until they see the boulder rolling down the hill a bunch of times. So that's one mm-hmm. and like I mean again it's yeah, this is what we get into and what Zizek, again, gets into uh, that she mentions of this idea that failure is necessary for success, so we shouldn't be afraid to fail. Okay, to quote, it's impossible to avoid the premature conquest of state power mm-hmm. by the proletariat precisely because these premature attacks against state power are in themselves important historic factors in helping to provoke and determine the point of a definite victory. Considered from the viewpoint of the idea of premature conquest of power by the laboring class appears to be a political absurdity derived from the mechanical conception of the development of society and positing for the victory of class struggle point outside than independent of the struggle. So, you know, basically, in order to get to a point where we have a successful revolution, we will need to have had an unsuccessful revolution or two. Mm-hmm. The socialist transformation so let's uh, supposes a long in the course of which it is probable the proletariat will be repelled more than once. So that for the first time, from the viewpoint of the final outcome of the struggle, it would have looked like power was seized too. Which early. is why the second coup is going to work. Yeah, no, I mean, possibly. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's never a failure until you succeed and then it's in hindsight a failure right or it's in hindsight (laughs) just a stepping stone to success like a failed attempt to take over the government on tuesday is a successful stepping stone to a successful takeover of power on friday yeah sure you just gotta win that game of red rover against the riot cops now there's 25,000 more of them. There's one point where she says that uh, trade union and parliamentarian politics is separate from social reform and therefore its development is in opposite directions. I mean, she talks about the contained. So, for example, she gets into how trade unions specifically argue for the suppression of like labor saving technology because that cuts down on working hours. And I mean, she mentions in her argument there that there are, in fact, reactionary elements that necessarily exist within those struggles. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you need to work outside those struggles to ultimately win power for the proletariat. Yeah, that makes Um, sense. I mean, you're going to have to. You, the listener, are going to have to square the fact that there are reactionary elements you know, trade unions protect their workers by driving up wages. That in turn drives up prices for customers who are also workers. You know, and there's like these sort of inherent contradictions that come along with that, which she talks about uh, in discussing the limits of that struggle. But she by no means was anti-union or anti-organizing. Yeah. Uh, she did seem to have anti-populism or at least 
anti-popularization of socialism, which as someone who follows and has lots of opinions about populism, I find that I think this was a really key paragraph. Here too, the theocratic base of his economic error is his popularization of socialism. For this is what he does. By transporting the concept of capitalism from its productive relations to property relations, and by speaking of simple individuals instead of speaking of entrepreneurs, he moves the question of socialism from the domain of production into the domain of relations of fortune. That is, from the relations between capital and labor to the relation between poor and rich. Yeah, that's she's very good. <laughs> but, what, but what does that mean? That's, that's a really <laughs> succinct way of cutting down a lot of the arguments that I hear about progressive reform. That it merely is just making poorer people richer. That's all that socialism has as its like horizon of possibility. The only horizon it yeah. has is making people, helping, yeah, helping poor, poor people. people to become slightly less poor. But so what does that yeah. mean? Like the relation between labor and capital, why is that so, different I mean, than poor and rich? Which, you know, is 101 Marxism, but I think it bears repeating. Right. So the idea is... Marxism is largely unconcerned with the idea of how much money you might have and, it, you know, more sees the relationship between capital and labor as objectively and in form uh, exploitative by its very nature of its relationship and not simply because some people make more money than other people. And it's a popular thing to skip over that and just try and make it a rich versus poor. Thing. Yeah, and then give poor people a thousand dollars and call it socialism and then yeah. run into a bodega and wave around yeah. some green tea. Yeah. Um, Buy two green tea. Or, sorry, not socialism, <laughs> capitalism with a human face. Yeah, capitalism with a human face. Just like I don't eat anything with eyelashes because I'm so nice. That was a thing people used to say. Like they weren't like quite vegetarian or vegan, but there was like some stipulation on not eating an mm. animal who had eyelashes, which I guess is pigs and cows yeah. of the typical meats. Goats got some lashes sometimes. Yeah, guess, you just yeah. you're in the birds. That's it. Well, I mean, I, the I, I'm fairly certain normal fish don't have. Eyelashes. Oh, and the fish, fish. <laughs> <laughs> Look, just because a I fish imagine called them as drawn just in, because you Fantasia. imagine them oh, as like a weirdly sexy fish that is in some Looney Tunes thing. To no, the sexy fish in Shark uh, Shark Tale, uh, yeah. uh, which is voiced by Angelina Jolie. <laughs> yeah, she's got big lips too. <laughs> Some nice Looney Tunes lips. made me be um, the perfect woman as a hastily made coyote mannequin that has <laughs> a giant wick coming out that is slowly burning down to a large uh, pack of TNT. Oh, for some, it's a cross-dressing oh, yeah, Bugs Bunny, so... Do you know that Coyote and Roadrunner was originally, like, meant to be a parody of Tom and Jerry? Yeah, it was like, oh, yeah, you know how, like, 
Tom and Jerry's sometimes a little silly and doesn't care about the laws of physics. Let's just amp that up to 11. And also let's make it a coyote and a roadrunner, which are two things you've never fucking heard of and have no idea whether they have an antagonistic uh-huh. relationship. It was like a joke originally. Acme Corporation. That's right. And you know what? He wasn't eating carrots. He ate celery in the original. The voice actor who did Bugs Bunny. I mean, it does sound like difficult to make the sound. It's a whole thing because sound for movie and TV is its own thing. It's got this uh, lovely effect that I don't know about you guys, but the first time I was like a older person and a real full on fight happened in front of me. I remember being struck by the utter lack (laughs) of sound effect. (laughs) Like a real fight is always grosser to me because it just sounds so squishy. Yeah, there's no like finesse there. It's just like, don't like it. Just meaty max. <laughs> uh, but what I love is that there's so many sounds that we don't even realize. Uh, we've probably engaged with primarily via a movie or a TV show. When we come upon it in real life, we're like, oh, yeah. is that what that sounds like? It's interesting. There's a great sketch in the 90s, I think at an MTV Movie Awards, where it was Janine Garofalo and Ben Stiller, and they were playing sound effects people. Basically, the gist of it is mm. they would use unusual things to get the sounds. Oh, yeah. No, but that I mean, is I what they do. I know about Foley artists. Uh, Nickelodeon always had, like, a, you always saw, like, a little special with the Foley artists, and it's like, that's oh, right. I'm, like, slapping a watermelon to make... My first experience having that mm-hmm. curtain drawn away from my eyes was when I got to see Garrison Keillor in person. Mm. He touched me in ways mm-hmm. I uh, still haven't recovered from. Oh my god, I remember when uh, The Onion, as a bit, had a Garrison Killer sex scandal, and then that literally (laughs) happened. That was funny. Um, Yeah, but they had a Foley guy there to do all the the radio skits. Well, I mean, there's also very very famously Bonnie Python and the Holy Grail. That's a primary plot point. Yeah, but that's when they, like, broke the fourth wall and then kept the fourth wall as the only wall, which is different than somebody on stage telling you, oh, there's horses coming, and then seeing the guy with the coconut doing it, which is, you know, different levels of simulation here. Are we done with Rosa? We're just doing rants. Just doing rants. Well, she had some good rants. My favorite is when she called him a virgin. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I know what you're talking about now. I think she was calling, like, socialism a virgin, a maiden on her wedding night or some shit. Oh, yeah. He is, to use Marx's illustration, like the foolish virgin who had a child who was only very small. (laughs) Yeah. It's after he. In other words, he refuses to see a great deal of the anarchy of capitalism. He sees only little of it. He is, to use Marx's illustration, like the foolish virgin who had a child who was only very small. <laughs> <laughs> foolish virgin. Um, yeah. Foolish uh, virgin. Bernstein is the incel virgin to Rosa Luxemburg's pinko commie slut. <laughs> 
Yeah, watch Hey Arnold, everyone. Show's good. Yeah, Hey Arnold is good. I'm sure we will return to Rosa <laughs> at another point. Reform and Revolution, you can read it for free online. Highly, again, recommend the graphic biography. I love it. And yeah, I guess we'll it's see. It's a brewing. I mean, a, if another coup is a, it's a brewing. I mean, I think that would be satellite the coups. icing on the James Bondian cake. By satellite coups, do you mean like coups in mm-hmm. other state capitals? Like, oh, I see. Uh, I thought it was like yeah. a yes, that a, is an anonymous that. type of crash of the uh, entire infrastructure by which we <laughs> yeah. rely upon in the internet. Or like space fights like that one two-parter of Archer. Yes. I have a whole rant about uh, <laughs> vigilantism because I saw one of my least favorite things about this was people were like, back the blue. These people are fighting the cops. And me being like, no, part of mm-hmm. fascism is vigilantism. And cops are really into being vigilantes. And that means fighting other cops. Literally, like, just most of Law & Order episodes are them just arguing which is better at exacting justice and how the government bureaucracy hurts their ability to catch the correct black person. Bye. <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> Marlo's coming back to bed. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know what it is. That, that He's going back today. to bed, and I had one of those uh, yesterday. I was, uh, went to bed real early. That's right. That's good. We'll see. <laughs> Would it be funnier if it was Coo- Cougar Town? <laughs> Cougar. Oh, I don't know. Something about the coup, but also Cougar Town. Yeah. Is that why I watched mm. it? You're Is like, uh, to find things with it this one been. syllable. It might have been. Cuckoo, cachoo, cuckoo, cachoo. Cougar Town, and there's no other. Mm. There's, yeah, I could have been watching or One Floor of the Cougar's Beatles Nest. Um, montage. Yeah, like there's a more. Weird time in television in the mid 2000s where it's like, yeah, you could just watch like. Tommy's mom's and MILF on like Nickelodeon and shit. Like they were just obsessed with those concepts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like Cougar Town is like it's a show that started out as like, oh yeah, we're gonna play on this cougar thing. And then they were like, Oh, we made these characters that people are kind of into, so we're like doing this show, but it kind of has nothing to do with Heard. with cougars at all anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's it's kind of strange, but there's like a ton of problematic jokes that I am like, oh, that's interesting that that was just 2012 <laughs> that that uh, these yeah. these jokes were made. Yeah, you could say the R word. That's right. That's <laughs> I was. Yep, that's pretty much it. It's pretty much it, Bye. guys. Bye. All right.